and uh, don't go out and buy the whole list. It'll take you too long to read it. And that's not an exhaustive list, but it's some of the uh, some of the better things that you can grab quickly, and, and a lot of them are quick reads too. So, so let's start with what is evangelism. I want to give me a definition or a description of what you think evangelism is. When you hear that, we could play word association. When you hear evangelism, what do you think? Sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel. You got that from me, didn't you? Probably. Just now. <laughs> evangelism. First thing that comes to mind. Great Commission. What else? Nothing? Well, this is a problem. We may need to do more than four weeks. <laughs> if you search through the Bible your Bible, you won't find this word anywhere. It's an English word. In fact, this word didn't, didn't become an English word until the 17th century. So if you're reading an English translation, you're not going to find evangelism in your Bible. The Bible does talk about evangelism, but the word, uh, this English word is not there. It is in the Greek text, and we won't do uh, a big word study here, but there's a couple of parts to this. Actually. The, the word that you would find in the Greek text would be comprised of these two parts. You and Angel. And uh, you means good. Take a shot at this one. News. 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 Yeah, it, it's talking about a messenger. Hence, angel, right? When you put it together, you get euangelion, which means good message or good news. Now, you know what good news is, right? Anybody not know what good news is? What would be some good news right now? Just general good news. They found a cure for cancer. They found a cure for cancer. That'd be really good news, right? What else? I don't have to take my final. You don't have to take your final? Or, even better yet, your teacher declared an A in your class. Right? That'd be really good news. What else? Well, you might think it's good news if you suddenly found your significant other that you fell in love with and were uh, going to get engaged to and get married with and saw you know, the, the future laid out right in front of you. That might be good news for some people, right? Uh, 
or if you got a job, something of that nature. This word is used 77 times in the New Testament, euangelion. And uh, 66 of those times, Paul is the one who uses it in his writings. Now, that sounds vastly disproportionate, but uh, when you think that Paul wrote about half of the New Testament, that puts it a little bit closer. But uh, th this is what Paul did. He, this is what was at the forefront of him. He was the quintessential evangelist or the pro proclaimer of the good news uh, that we know, we know as the gospel. Um, this word was used in general uh, so secular society, you know, Greek society, as, as a common term. So everyone used it, just as we were describing other, uh, a minute ago. If you had any kind of good news, that was the word that people referred to. That's how, what they used to describe it. Now, the Bible makes it much more specific. It's not just general. It's not a broad term. It is used that way occasionally, but primarily it's used very specifically. And we have inside information on that, don't we? We, we understand why it's specific and what it's specific to. Let's see, who's got a Bible? Mark 1.1. 1, 1. Um, Kara, if you'll look up 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. So when you're reading your English version of the Bible, most of the time, this word is going to be used... Uh, written as gospel most of the time so when you see that word this is the word that's behind it in most instances Evangelion. okay you got Mark 1-1 listen carefully the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ the son of God the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ the son of God the beginning of the good news Evangelion. um so what is it? What is the gospel? You hear it a lot. We talk about it a lot. We, when, when we're in worship service together, uh, no matter who's preaching, you're going to hear the term gospel. You're going to hear this term used a lot. Good news. What does it mean, though? How would you, someone, someone you know, someone you're close to, ask you, you know, I don't go to church. I've never been to church. I've, I've never read the Bible. I've never, uh, nobody in my family is a Christian, so I don't know any of this vernacular that you use, but I hear this word gospel. Tell me what you would tell them. How would you describe it to them? Because we just said there's lots of good news. So how would you help them understand what we mean when we talk about the gospel or good news as it's presented in scripture. Well, what it means to me would be something that's uh, fairly difficult to communicate to somebody who's never read the Bible, knows nothing about God or, or Christianity or anything because the gospel to me it's the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to 
save the world from sin, specifically to live, to die, to be raised again for my justification. <coughs> but to say that to someone who is totally oblivious to what I'm talking about, that requires some kind of translation, I guess. Exactly. And, and But that's exactly where we are as a culture, is that the majority of people that you're going to school with or the people that we meet over here in the community. I, I, I think I said this last week in this very Bible study is that Crabapple and this area 15 years ago is 180 degrees different than it is today. It's not just that we have more buildings and houses and people here, but these people have come from places without any gospel background. They, they don't have church background. They don't move in here thinking about, oh, we need to find a church to attend. Uh, you know, and when you start talking about gospel, you start talking about faith and prayer and things of that nature, everybody kind of has a general idea of prayer, I guess. But, but these things are foreign terms to them. It's a foreign language to them. And so you're exactly right. Now, one thing I would caution you, and, and this is something that society has pushed on us, be careful in couching any of these things and saying what it means to me, okay? Because we, we don't want to give them the benefit of caving into this rel relativism that's in our society and say that you're entitled to your own definition because they're not. Uh, you know, we want to say this is the truth. You know, this is what God says. The world, the culture today is anti-authoritarian. That means that they don't want to buy into the fact that God is absolute, that he's uh, absolute sovereign, that he's authority, that he has this power over all of us. They want to believe that we're all on the same terms and that we can write and make up our own rules. So that's why it's important not to, not to express it in a way it says, you know, my, what, how I see it or how I understand it. Don't, that'll let them off the hook. I know what you were saying, but it's, it's easy. Question? Did you raise your hand? You stretch. That's fine. We allow that in here. You stretch. You get one stretch during the course of the class, right? And short naps. Short naps. Well, it depends on age. We allow some to have a little bit, of, a little bit of a nap if they need it. Okay, so how how do you do this? We we acknowledge that they don't know the terms. They don't know these things. They don't have the background. So it's a little bit intimidating on that front. So how do we begin? What do we tell them? How do we communicate to them? We're, Jesus has told us, we just said it's a great commission. So it's our it's our mandate. It's not optional for us. So we better figure out how to learn the language, right? So how would we describe the gospel? All right, Kara, read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. I want you to listen carefully because Paul gives you a succinct definition of the gospel. A definition of the gospel. Okay, read it. <clears throat> now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay. So, that's a very good definition of the gospel. You can also get a definition of the gospel by reading the first four chapters of Romans. You should be familiar with that, right? Uh, right out of the gate in Romans 1, I mean, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And then he begins to unpack that. If you remember back, I know it's probably more than I could ask that you remember all those sermons from Romans. But I told you when we uncovered that verse right there that what Paul was going to be doing was unpacking that verse over the next chapters. And that's what he does. Chapters 2 and, you know, the end of chapter 1, you get into that. God has given them over to their minds. They, they don't want, even though they know God, they don't want God in their lives. They're rejecting God. They're, they're um, shaking their fist at God. They've declared themselves to be enemies of God. And we don't want to be ruled by you, so we're rebels against you. And then... God gives them over to that. He says, that you want what you, this is what you want. I'm giving it over to you. And then chapter 2 and part of chapter 3, you get into the consequences. Romans describes for us the consequences of this rebellion against God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. And, and it's a big problem. It's a huge problem. And judgment is implied in that, if not stated clearly, that that's the consequence for our sin. Then you come to the end of chapter 3, and he says what? Look it up. Romans 3, 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ah, he's changing gears right there. He has bottomed out. Here's the consequence. Here's the problem that you have because of sin. All right? Judgment is imminent. But you can be, you are justified by the work of Christ. We've just come through the Easter season, and we talked about this Atonement. Jesus made atonement to God for our sin. Our sin, our rebellion, merits the judgment of God. If God is holy, which He is, God is holy, He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot allow sin to persist. If He does, then He forfeits His holiness. He ceases to be holy. He can no longer be God. He has to resign as God and creator over all the universe. How absurd would that be? But if God doesn't judge sin, that's exactly what's required of him. And so in order to satisfy his own judgment and yet be able to offer forgiveness to those that have earned this judgment through their sin, Jesus came to stand in the gap. Jesus came to be our substitute. So he took the wrath of God, he took the judgment of God that was owed to all of us in our place, died, was buried, resurrected, and was seen, was seen, Paul said, after the fact. Okay? So now what does that mean? Let's unpack 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and 4 just a little bit. 
There's four things that he says here, and I just stated them to you, that are important. They're important elements of the gospel. Number one, Christ died for our sins. Or let's call it our rebellion. I think one of the best ways to get to to even get to that point is to start with kind of what we do when we go to creation of Christ. To yeah. start with creation, right? To even get them to know that there is sin and rebellion is to start in the garden. That's right, but we don't have time to do that tonight. I mean, but we'll circle back to that is that you're exactly right because they don't have a concept of who God is so you've got to start at the beginning the problem if you start there is that you're going to end up chasing creation and evolution arguments because this is what you're being force fed in school All right. so I would suggest that you try to get to the gospel and share the gospel then you go back and build the case for why this is important you know because you get them exposed to it at least. Then you can circle back and say, look, you can look at all of creation and see that, you know, this, is, this was made intentionally by someone. It had to have a designer. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just explode onto the scene. But, and you can start there. But, you know, whereas you have an oral culture like the Senegalese where they'll sit and listen to you go through that, we don't have that here. So you're going to end up in an argument probably on creation and evolution. And then you may lose them over that very thing. So if you can get to the gospel first, and then you can answer questions about other things. Well, who is God? Well, you know, can we come back to that? Let's go through the gospel short here, explain to you what it is, and then we'll go back and do the long version you know, where we'll fill in and, and make it make more sense. But let's trust God to honor his gospel maybe out of the gate. That means different circumstances are different. You may have somebody you have a relationship with and, and is open to a conversation, you know, that would go along. And you could start and just weave your way through the scripture. But I would caution you, don't get derailed in chasing all these other rabbits and miss, you know, the diamond in the ring, which is the gospel itself. So Paul says Christ died for our sin. Paul says that he was buried. Why is that important? Because he had to die. Huh? He had to actually die. Yeah, this is a proof claim. This is proof that he died. Same reason that Lazarus was left in the grave for, what was it, four days? Four days. Four days. Same reason when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick and he said, you know, it's to your benefit that I'm, you know, doing what I'm doing and Lazarus has been sick and this is for the glory of God. And he waited more time before he went to Lazarus. He waited intentionally for Lazarus to die and be buried so there was no doubt in anybody's mind that he was really dead. And so when Jesus died, they put him in a tomb and he was there for three days because that was emphatically proving that he had died. He didn't just faint. He didn't just swoon. It wasn't a ruse, okay, that he just needed to regain consciousness or, or something of that nature. So this is a proof claim. Then he arose. He resurrected. 
that's pretty stunning. That's pretty bizarre. Most people are going to take issue with that. You don't come back to life. Once you're really dead, you don't come back to life. Now, some people might give you a benefit of a doubt because we've had some of these uh, hoaxers out there that claim to have been dead for 20 minutes and been to heaven and all those kind of things, right? So they may, they may give it at least a first pass, but when you talk about being dead three days and being buried, nobody in their right mind is going to sign off on that one and say, well, yeah, okay, I believe that. So you need the fourth component, which is what? He was seen. We just went through this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, talking about Thomas in John chapter 20. The disciples, you know, they that, that chapter 20 was a pretty condensed version of the events of that day, but there was a whole lot that went on in that, you know, 12, 15, 18 hour period. A whole lot. And it was all about validating that he was resurrected. And then you get to chapter 21 that we looked at last week and why, you know, we talked about the significance of the fire on the, on the beach was to uh, state to Peter that he was forgiven and to restore him, but it was more than that. Jesus, in all these encounters, Jesus was also partaking of food. He was doing normal things. He was interacting with them. He let them, let them touch him to verify to them that he really, it was him. It, this is no, this is no uh, ghost. You know, this is no um, chicanery going on here. This is a real body. This is the real man. He's different, but he's really human and resurrected at this point. And over 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus was repeatedly seen and encountered all these kinds of things with people that validated his resurrection. 40 days worth. And when he finally uh, ascended back into heaven, we're told, I think it was Paul, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head where he says it, but he tells us that there were some 500 people that saw Jesus and interacted with Jesus during this 40 days. 500 people, that's significant, right? Because you live in a culture where one person's word's not enough to be absolute truth. But when you get more than one, when you get two witnesses, then it becomes hard to disprove. You have to, you have to give it serious consideration. 500 witnesses? You know, there's nothing coming back from that, right? That's over the top. That, that's what he was doing during that time. So Paul mentions these. These are the elements, the key elements of the gospel. Now, this is not complete because evangelism got more to it than, than just the facts of the, of the death, burial, and resurrection of the gospel, right? Say yes. 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 All right, good. There's a second word that's used, um, and it's the same word except the ending is different. This is the first word, that's evangelism, essentially. And then there is, you know, if you know anything about, you may have heard um, the word baptize, translated from the word baptizo uh, has an I-Z-O on the end of it 
Well, here you've got the same thing here. You change the ending. The second word is the verb. That means to evangelize. So it's the act of doing gospel work. We can use that for definition right now. Evangelism at its core is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. The second word means to evangelize or to announce the good news. Again, we know good news. We went through those, right? Examples of what would make good news. And the act of announcing that good news. Owen wants an A in his class and not have to take the final. So the teacher walks in and says, A, Owen, I declare that you've made an A in my class. She has just evangelized him. She's given him good news, right? It's not just a noun, it's a verb. It's used 55 times in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love. Brought us good news of your faith and love. This phrase, brought us good news, is the verb that we're talking about. Most often this term is translated more specifically as preach the gospel. Okay, When it pertains to what we're talking about, it's going to be translated in your English translations as preach the gospel. For instance, 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize or to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, if I do not evangelize. <clears throat> so in this sense... Announce the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now, like I just said, it's not the full meaning or most appropriate definition. Michael Kokoris says that evangelism is communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ with the immediate intent of converting the hearer to faith in Christ and with the ultimate intent of instructing the convert in the word of God so that he or she can become a mature believer. That's a pretty good definition. I might quibble with a couple of things. Uh, in the New Testament, Christians announce or proclaim the facts of the gospel and do so in a persuasive way. We can't convert anyone. So that's why I don't like that word, our intent of converting. We, we want them converted, but God's the only one who can convert. The Holy Spirit brings conviction, the gospel truth. The Spirit uses it to bring conviction and regenerate inside, making a person a new creation. We can't do that. Only God can. So we communicate the gospel. We tell the facts of the gospel, but with the intent of persuading them, trying to persuade them to believe this, to repent and believe, put their faith on Christ, and be converted. Okay? J.I. Packer describes evangelism this way in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He said, how then should evangelism be defined? The New Testament answer is very simple. According to the New Testament, evangelism is just preaching the gospel, the evangel. He then adds, evangelizing, therefore, is not simply a matter of teaching and instructing and imparting information to the mind. There's more to it than that. Evangelism includes the endeavor to elicit a response to the truth taught. It is communication with a view to conversion. It is a matter not merely of informing, but also of inviting. Okay? So that's a helpful way to think about the gospel. You can know, you can know these things and want to share them with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, someone that you encounter, 
And the way you do that is that you inform them of these things. You need to be able to explain to them what they mean. And then you want to invite them to believe them for themselves so that it changes their lives. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with this. We know we don't do the saving. We don't do the converting. But there's nothing wrong with us bringing them to that point of deciding. You know, that crisis of belief moment that Henry Blackaby talks about where they have to decide, yeah, I believe this or I don't. I'm going to reject it. And every time the gospel presented, that, that dynamic takes place. Somebody may be looking at you, you. You may share with them with all of your heart, and you think they're sitting there like just a lump on a log, not listening to anything, and, you know, and you're going to walk away discouraged thinking that it was all for naught. You never, ever think that because the gospel is dynamic. It's supernatural. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, and you can't go by what your eyes tell you. You have to trust that God moves and mobilizes and empowers his word in ways that you and I can't. Now, if you're just relying upon your ability to communicate the gospel, to tell the story, then you're going to sell it short. That's why the, the scripture, the word of God, is so important in this, is that you cast the word of God into the equation, you know, you share with them 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. This is what the Bible says. This is what God says the gospel is. You go to Romans, you know, 1 through 4. Or follow the Roman road, you know, if you, if you have um, written that down in your Bibles at some point in time. That takes you through those verses. Having people read those verses, you know, rather than you read it to them, have them read it back to you. Read that. Tell me what you think that means. What you're doing is you're letting the Word of God do the work, which is what we should be doing. But you need to know what's involved in it. You need to know where you need to take them, right? How you need to connect the points here. But letting the Word of God speak for itself and do the work is, is critical. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Do you evangelize? We've defined it. We know what it is. We know what's involved. Do you evangelize? And yeah, this, is, this is a no-shame culture in here tonight. Okay? There's no shame. Most of us don't. Have you ever evangelized someone? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone with an intent, with an invitation? You know, to respond in faith. Many of us do. You know, most often, depending on when you came to Christ yourself, people who first come to Christ are really excited about it. You know, they think everyone should be excited about it. So they have kind of this little, you know, uh, amnesia about, you know, their inhibitions and everything, and they go out and they just think everybody's going to be excited about it. So they're willing to share then. But what happens? We... We may get pushed back. We may get uh, rejected or ridiculed or somebody, you know, even embarrasses us in front of others uh, in a way. And, and we become self-conscious about it. And so we reel it back in and we say, okay, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to get myself embarrassed again. And, you know, who does that benefit? You know, normally we talk up here. You know, we, we interact. 
you know, so it's okay to do that. We don't shoot anybody if they get in a wrong answer or anything. Doesn't benefit anybody. Well, it benefits the enemy, doesn't it? The, ben the enemy wants us to be silent. He, he wants us to not share. It's hard for someone that's never had any background in Scripture or with other believers or have been raised in a church. Many of you have probably been raised in church from before you were born. So it's hard for us to relate and understand about the person who doesn't have that benefit. The person that we're encountering that hears us speaking about these things and thinking you're speaking a foreign language. And it's easy for us to get very comfortable in our little cocoon and not venture outside. And the enemy likes it that way. You know, if you're in Christ, you're a lost cause to him. So the two things he wants is to silence your witness or he wants to wreck your witness. You know, if he can get you to stumble and fall and sin and lose your credibility with, with people that you might witness to, or he can just get you to shut up and be quiet and be embarrassed for Christ, about Christ, then he's won the battle. Nobody else is going to hear, right? They're not going to get it by osmosis. God's not going to send angels to tell them in most cases. Why? Yeah, this is not hard. This is not rocket science. He has designed it so that you and I, as believers, as his adopted family, that we would do it, that we will share. It's a privilege, you know, to tell others what Christ has done for us. We often think of it as a duty kind of put it, get it in a category because we feel self-conscious and threatened by it. Most church goers never share the gospel. They never share their faith. Uh, I ran across a little um, study, a report on a study that had been done recently. Well, actually it's a little older than I thought, five or six years old. <clears throat> the, the research was conducted by Lifeway Research. And this is what they found. 80% of those who attend church once or more times a month believe they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. Do you believe that? You have a responsibility to share your faith? I think we've established that, haven't we? Uh, yet, despite this conviction, 61% have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. So six out of ten aren't doing it. Eight out of ten believe it's our responsibility. They believe the Great Commission. But six out of ten aren't doing it. Okay? Three quarters, 75% of churchgoers say they feel comfortable in their ability to effectively communicate the gospel. You know, we used to say, well, our people, our people, our church people, our Christians are not equipped. They're not, they don't know how to do it. But we've we've changed that. Everybody, three out of four say they know how. They're comfortable in knowing how to share the gospel. But we don't do it. Only, well, 12% say they don't feel comfortable telling others. Only 12% say they're not equipped to share their faith. The rest of us are just being disobedient, aren't we? That probably doesn't apply in this room. The survey also asked how many times they have personally invited an unchurched person to attend a church service or some other program at your church. Nearly half, 48% uh, of church attendees, responded zero. 33% of people say they've personally invited someone 
one or two times, and 19% say they've done so on three or more occasions in the past six months. So what does it mean? If Christians feel comfortable sharing their faith and recognize it's their responsibility as disciples, why do so few share the gospel? It's a real disconnect, isn't it? How do we interpret that? What do you think it means? What's the reason? Got to be a reason, right? Why, why don't we share? Like you said, they're embarrassed. Okay, they're embarrassed? Of what people are going to respond to. Embarrassed. Who? Embarrassed. Is that right? It's hard to write on the board. Spell right. Afraid of confrontation. So you had you actually had two there. Fear. Confrontation. Embarrassed. In First Romans one sixteen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but if we're embarrassed. We are. We're saying we're ashamed of Christ, right? What else? Some people would say they they uh, don't know how. Although it's maybe twenty five percent or less. We allow ourselves to be restricted. Um, or would you say intimidated? Oh, okay. All right. Um, limited by rules. We allow ourselves to be bullied. You think about that dynamic. If if you're saying, yeah, I'm not going to share my faith because they'll send me home from school or they'll fire me at work. What do we say? I'm more scared of them than God. I'm more scared of them than God. I'm, I'm afraid that God would not provide for me, that God would not protect my job, that God would allow these things that, and he might. He might, because he uses persecution to further his work too. So I mean, these are not unfounded fears. They may very well be accurate. So another reason we don't share. Some people just don't want to. Well, that preacher did it. Obstinate. That's just the truth. Well, maybe we just say disobedience. I'm just not going to do it. You can't make it. It's your job. I got other things to do. Yeah. Geriatrics. Geriatrics? Oh, no, Jerry does it. You. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Scriptures tells me that my job is to equip you to do it. Ephesians 4. I think sometimes we don't believe the power of the gospel. Lack of faith. And what it can actually and that really affects all these, doesn't it? Yeah. We don't believe that God can overcome these things. 
We don't believe that God can use your mouth even though you think I'm going to put my foot in my mouth or I don't know. What if they ask me a hard question? We'll say I don't know, but I can find out. You know, you got Sam Miller here who's a bastion of theological intelligence. You, right? You can, no, we have resources. Somebody asks you a question that's too hard and you say, look, you know, I don't know the answer to that. That's a really good question, but I'll get the answer to you and I'll be back. How's that? Works every time. Or you can say, you know, that's a really good question. Can we come back to that? Let's, let's go ahead and go with this right now and we'll come back to Darwin. Okay? Because I got a lot to say about Darwin, but I don't want to get off track and get two rails going here at once. So let's just talk about Jesus first, and then we'll come back and talk about Darwin. That's several conversations with my dad about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, yeah. <laughs> you know what the number one question is through the years? How did dinosaurs Was Adam and Eve before or after the dinosaurs? Was Adam and Eve before the dinosaurs? Yeah, things have probably changed. Were the dinosaurs? The number one question I've been asked every time, not every time, but when somebody wants to put on a stall tactic, they want to know where Cain got his wife. That's the classic. When that one comes, yeah. you know you're getting close to the mark. Well, can I ask you a question? Where did Cain get his wife? So he married his sister. What? Yeah. We'll come back to it and I'll explain it, but he did. But those are, those are diversions. Those are distractions, and the enemy is, is filling their head full of those things as you go. So you don't want those to become the issue. You know, stay, stay on point. Go to the gospel. All these other things are diversionary tactics to get you off the message and get you focused on chasing rabbits. If you can chase these rabbits. Now, look, let me, go, let me share with you this, and then we'll have time to go back and talk about those. And for, if God's moving in someone's life with the gospel, those questions will go away once he saves them. <laughs> they may take on other forms of discipleship. The objections to Christ, the excuses will go away. Other things that keep us from sharing. How about busy? Just too busy. Don't have time. Or I don't have any friends. Um, Sometimes there's a language barrier. Like you don't want to share because you can't. What can you do in a situation like that? <laughs> huh? Google Translate. Get Translate. Google Translate. <laughs> See, it's a new, it's a new world. Y'all have no excuses now. <laughs> I'll tell you what I did. You remember Esmeralda, who was here for a couple of years doing our custodial work? Mm -hmm. Esmeralda speaks some English, but it's very difficult uh, to have a, a serious conversation about the gospel because a lot would get lost in translation. Um, I found uh, a DVD, I think I got it through Wretched Radio, that was in the gospel in Spanish. And I said, I want you to take this home and watch it. You know, so it took the heat off of me <laughs> trying to figure out and make sure that she's understanding what I'm saying. And I didn't have time to do Google translation, or I didn't have somebody who could stand in the middle and translate like we will in Senegal or in India or somewhere like that. So it was another way of saying, hey, take this and watch it, and then let's talk about 
there's plenty of resources around for those kind of things. You can get tracts in different languages now, Bibles in different languages. So all those things are there, but that's a, and especially in the culture we're living in today, the world literally lives in our area, doesn't it? Anything else? Um, Ray Comfort offers 10 reasons why we should share the gospel. 10 reasons why we should. So we've got lots of reasons why we won't or don't or talk ourselves out of it or allow someone else to talk us out of it. Um, but there's, he gives 10 reasons why we should do it. And I think they're worth considering. Um, the first one is evangelism is our mandate. We've already, we've already talked about it. Uh, let me give out four scriptures. Who wants to read? Owen, look up Matthew 18, or I mean, sorry, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You probably got that one memorized. Um, John 15, 16, 15. Mark 16, 15 through 16. Catherine. Acts 1 8. Riley. You got it, Owen? Yeah. All right. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Listen carefully. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But he didn't say evangelize. <clears throat> what did he say? Teaching them to observe. Before that, go therefore. Go therefore, and what? Make disciples. Make disciples. Well, you can't make a disciple unless they're a convert, unless they're evangelized. Part of the problem in our churches today is that churches are trying to make sheep out of people who are still goats. They're still lost, but they're trying to learn principles. They're trying to learn spiritual principles that helps them in life. So they're trying to become more moral in their lives. They're trying to become better parents, better employees, better this, better that, using Christian principles without actually having a regeneration take place, becoming a new creation. And so it's just, it's outward external pressure that's being applied. And, and a lot of them do it willingly, okay? That's not evangelism. That's not discipleship. Real discipleship. And that verse says, it says, go therefore and make disciples. But literally, it should be translated, as you are going, make disciples. As you are going through life, as you're doing life, make disciples. So, you know, we don't get pack up and get in our cars and go out and hit the streets tonight and start preaching from the corners here. It's not going to be very effective or helpful probably in the culture we live in today. There was a time where that would work. There may be some cultures today in Africa where you could do that. You could stop alongside the road where some people are gathered and they're sitting. You can beat the drum and people will gather and you can preach the gospel and they will listen and some will be converted. But in America today, 21st century America, that method's not going to work. You know, they're going to send people with a little paddy wagon and lock you up probably. Think you're crazy. Or they're going to sit back and laugh. So there are better ways, more effective ways, as we're going through life, as you're going to class with people, sitting beside 
the same person every day in class or playing with the same people on the basketball team or someone lives across the street or across the fence in your neighborhood and you get to know them. As you're having conversations with them, you're looking for opportunities to begin to chip away and share the truths of the gospel. You know, you let them see Christ in you. You express the love of Christ in, in action and deed as you interact with them. But then you have to put the verbiage with it. You have to begin to share with them what, what the scripture says the gospel is because you care for them and you want to see them come to Christ. So um, as you're going, make disciples, but it begins with evangelism. Who had the next one? John 15, 16. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. Yeah. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He's talking to all of his disciples, including us. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I've appointed you to go and make fruit that remains. Make disciples. Real disciples. Genuine disciples. Uh, Mark 15, uh, 16, 15, and 16. Okay. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Okay, this is Mark's version of the Great Commission that uh, Owen just read. Acts 1 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay. The disciples, Jesus told the disciples to go up to Galilee and wait on him. He said, wait for the Spirit to come. So do we need to go to Galilee to wait for the Spirit? But he says the Spirit, the power of the Spirit will come upon us. What does that mean? When you're saved, when you're converted, when you are convicted of your sin by the gospel, by the, by the truth of God, and you are moved to believe upon Christ and express an outward repentance of your sin and desire to follow Christ, okay? This interchange takes place in you. At that moment, the Spirit of God is in you. The Spirit of God is the one who's brought about this change. He has entered your life. Before that happens, as a lost person, you're like, you're like this piece of furniture here. You're dead as everything, spiritually speaking. You may be moving around and be animated physically, but spiritually you're dead. You're a, you're a piece of rock. And that's the way God describes it in the Old Testament. Hearts of stone. But when the Spirit of God moves in, He takes the stone out and He gives you a heart of flesh. He gives you a living heart, a spiritual heart. He moves in, and when He comes in, He brings with Him this supernatural power, this dynamic power that's God's power an anointing from God that resides in you by virtue of his presence so when you go out to share the gospel as a believer you have this power working on your behalf now you need to be nurturing it you need to be nourishing yourself in the fellowship with God you need to be spending time with God in his word you need to be spending time with God in prayer you need to be living a life that's honorable to God and keeping maintaining the fellowship but he says the Spirit will fill you, fill us with his power. So we have that same promise for us. When we go out to make disciples or as we're going and we make disciples or desire to make disciples, it's not you acting on your own. It's you living out God's command for you in his power and presence in you. 
So it's him doing it through you. That's all he asks you to be is available. He doesn't ask you to be special in any way. You don't have to be special. You don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to be uh, Luke Folsom. You don't have to be anybody else. You have to be you with the Spirit of God residing in you and using you as his vessel to bring about the spreading of his gospel. Okay, so evangelism is our mandate. That's one reason we should share the gospel. Second one, hell exists. Uh, Luke 12, 5, someone. Who can get there fast? Luke 12, 5. Luke 12, 5. Jude 22 and 23. I'll give out some of these. We'll go through them quickly. Who's got Jude 22 and 23? Hebrews 5, 9. Hebrews 5, 9. Luke 6.46 Luke 6.46 James 4.17 James 4.17 Philemon 5 and 6 Philemon 5 and 6 2 Timothy 2.15 1 Corinthians 2.2 Romans 10.1 1 Corinthians 10, 33 through 11, verse 1. I know it's a mystery. You don't know how many verses that means. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 33 through chapter 11, verse 1. All right? Now back to the top. Who took took Luke 12, 5? Come on. But but I'll tell you whom to fear, fear of God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he is the one to fear. So Jesus is talking. He said, look, stop fearing these people on earth that you think can do things to you. He said, the one you need to fear is the one who has the power to cast you into hell. Jesus talked more about hell than he did on heaven. So hell is real. We can quibble about whether it's a, you know, it's a literal fire, metaphorical fire, whatever it may be, but it's bad. Okay, it's bad. And it's real and it exists. That's enough reason right there. If we can use the parable that Jesus told about hell in Luke 16 and go by what the rich man encountered. You remember the rich man died, went to hell. He lifted up his eyes. He saw Lazarus, the the beggar, who laid outside his door every day, who had nothing in this world. And Lazarus was in heaven. He was in the bosom of Abraham, the scripture says. And this man was in torment. And he kept looking up. And he wanted to be there. He, He desired to be there. But he couldn't. God said there is a gap. There is a, a, a chasm that's fixed between us. And you can never cross there. You're cast there. And he begged for someone to be sent back to tell his brothers lest they find their way to the same place. So there was a desire in there. And I, I would say it this way. This is not a place that you'd want your worst enemy to go. Okay? When it comes to thinking about hell, there are no enemies. We should want everybody to be spared hell. And so that's a motivation to share the gospel. Thirdly, we strive to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Jude 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That's right. We're encouraged to love other people as we love ourselves. And none of us want to go, right? We want to be spared that, so we should be thinking about what if the what if the roles were reversed? 
What if your friend or your neighbor or the acquaintance that you're thinking about is lost? What if that person were saved and going to church all the time and you were the lost person? Would you want them to tell you? Hebrews 5, 9. Luke 6.46 Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? So a fourth reason is obedience is evidence of salvation. When we're obeying Christ, it's evidence of our own salvation. And he's given us this commandment to go and share our faith. So when we're doing that, we're being obedient to him. When we're not doing that, we're being disobedient. And obedience is evidence of our own relationship with Christ. Fifth, to remain in silence is sin. James 4.17 Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Yeah, anyone knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. James says it very, very pointedly, very straightforward. If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin, he says. So to remain in silence and keep our mouths closed is sin. Sixth, evangelism deepens our walk with God. Philemon 5 and 6. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have for the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Yeah. It deepens as you begin to share with others. It's going to make you appreciate the gospel even more. And as you see the power of God working through the gospel in the lives of other people, it's going to have a major impact upon you. When we, when we become indifferent and we separate ourselves from other people and we go silent, we get a little cold and callous to the gospel. Uh, it causes us to search the scriptures. Two, 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of It deepens our prayer life. Romans 10.1 Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And we have been commanded to imitate Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, 33 through 11, 1. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Okay, how do you go about doing that? I want to give you just a couple of quick things to think about. Your testimony, your own relationship with Christ is key when you're having these conversations. You, know, you don't want to minimize what the scripture says and what, you know, use the word of God. That's where the power is at. But you make connections with people via your own testimony. Now, if you were saved young, it may be a little bit more challenging for you, you know, because it, you think it's not as dramatic. And, I, and you shouldn't think that way at all. Anytime God makes you a new, crea a new creation, it's an incredible event, okay? It's a big-time deal. We have been prone to believe or made to believe that um, we hear someone give a dynamic testimony you know, about they came out of drugs and, and rock and roll and all that stuff, and God <laughs> saved them out of it into this marvelous light. And we think, oh, man, what a cool testimony. And we want one like that, you know, because we think, 
Everybody remembers that. Well, I think the most powerful testimony is someone that's a moral person, uh, a good person that's going through life and recognizes that their goodness is not enough. You know, they don't have the taste for the for the negative stuff and the, and being severe on that side of the page. Uh, for for it's harder for a good person, i.e. the the uh, the rich young ruler that came to Christ, who said, "I've kept all of the law." And Jesus said, "Well, sell all that you have and come follow me." You know, he was clinging to his own goodness. That's why he wouldn't follow Christ, and he went away. He went away sad. So. Your story can be an important part of your encounter with somebody. And, and when you're sharing your testimony, whether it be uh, a, you ought to have a 90-second version of your testimony, you ought to have a 5-minute version and a 10-minute version. And if anybody ever asks you to stand up and give it and gives you 30 minutes to do it, fine. But you don't need a 30-minute version of your testimony. A, a one and a half minute you know, 60-to-90-second 60, 60 version, a 5-minute version, and in most, a 10-minute version. Because remember, the gospel encounter is not about you. It's about Christ and this person in front of you. Your testimony is just a segue into making a connection with them so that you get opportunity to share the gospel. So your testimony, very succinctly, is this. Your life before Christ, how you came to realize you needed Christ, and since Christ. Okay? It's that easy. Life before Christ, very minimal. Don't glorify the enemy. Don't glorify bad living, bad decisions, immorality, or all that stuff. Don't glorify all that stuff. It's not necessary. You know, I was living for myself. I was living a very selfish, self-centered life. I was, you know, scared of my own shadow. I was scared of dying. I was scared of this. I was this, that, and the other. I was living greedy, you know, living a greedy life for just me. Self-consumed. How did I come to realize that something was missing, you know? How did I realize? For me, as a young child, my great-grandmother died, and I couldn't get my mind around the fact that I wasn't going to see her again, and that really disturbed me that she was gone, and I didn't know how to put that together, so it, it frightened me to think about that, and I became very attentive, very um, interested in the explanation for that, which was the gospel, which was, this is not the end, you know? This is just the beginning. Thirdly, what's happened since you came to Christ, you know? That's where, you know, you can share what Christ has done in your life, how he's strengthened you, and why you're sharing your faith with him now. And... With that said, this is what I'd like for you to think about doing. Um, I want you to write out your testimony as homework. Now, Craig's teaching y'all next week, right? Okay, but I'll 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 put Bug and Luke's here. He'll know that you're supposed to have done it. He already did. He told us. Yeah, he told us. Write your testimony, and this is what I want you to do. Write out what you need to write. This is a good exercise. Write it down. And most of you are going to find that you're long-winded. It's going to take you a whole page. Some of it may take two pages. When you get done writing it, you know, read through it. Make sure that you follow that format. Before Christ, why I knew I needed Christ, since Christ. Okay? And then we'll talk about what you, uh, what you bring back next time. Question? Question?